Hi, I'm Ryan Garner. And I'm Petra Barisha. And today we've taken over Fintech Insider to talk to you about data. It's not how big your data is, it's how you use it. (laughs) (laughs) So Ryan, a few weeks ago, me and you were talking about Experian. And weirdly enough, about 15 minutes after this conversation, I got a LinkedIn message from someone from Experian offering me a job. And I very quickly got freaked out and messaged you and said, how is this possible? Are they listening to me? Creepy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So this could just be a coincidence. However, it is widely talked about online. In fact, there's a really, really good podcast called Reply All and is Facebook spying on us? Uh, I know this is Facebook and not Experian, but similar kind of things apply here. Your data is in loads of different places and there are brokers like Experian that aggregate all of that information and share it behind the scenes. So you kind of don't know where your data is going to end up, but it ends up producing these pretty creepy scenarios where, hang on a minute, I've not even typed anything into a computer, but they seem to know what I'm talking about. Your digital footprint is is all over the internet. And so your data can be picked up by one company, sold for, to another company, and then this produces this kind of creepiness effect and it completely freaked you out because you were talking about it one moment and it pops up the next. Is that a good internet experience? Is that a positive experience that you want to be associated with that brand? It could have been a coincidence. It could well have been a coincidence, but it could equally have been the result of some marketing that was extremely well data-driven. Well, maybe what I found even weirder was because it was actually a guy that worked for Experian messaging me. It wasn't like a an auto message. I think people or internet users have just kind of got to a point where this is just not the internet experience they want. You know, I think we see that with the levels of ad blocking that's going on right now. In January 2017, there was, you know, 650 million devices around the world blocking ads. And that was growing enormously at that point. And I suspect it's even higher now. You look at what the result of that is, you know, it's people just being a bit sick of the deluge of adverts that's kind of ruining the experience of like using the internet, but also this this kind of creepiness effect. Like, how do you know this stuff about me? Is that cool? I'm not sure I'm cool with that anymore. So, so, so how do they know it. this stuff about me? Like, where are they getting all this data? Yeah, it's a good question. And a lot of people kind of don't know that what happens behind the scenes. You know, when you log into a website, you're creating a digital footprint. When you unlock your phone and open an app, you're creating a digital footprint. That data, once recorded, is then used and stored by various different companies. And there's a whole industry for data brokers where that data gets collected and shared and aggregated together to create a a profile of you somewhere. I don't know if you heard about the Equifax hack um, last year. No, I mean, very briefly, but... And this is why people were so concerned about it, because so many profiles, very rich profiles of person X lives in this country, lives at this address, is this gender, is this age, has this many kids, these kids are this age, they go to this school. When you start getting into that level of detail, that gets extraordinarily personal. It means that businesses can target advertising extraordinarily well. But it also means that we kind of feel out of control. I just I just find it so crazy that 
all this data is compiled and how much of it do like Experian or I don't know, Google have and what are they doing with all of it? A lot of it. Have you heard of data lakes? Kind of. Every brand will collect customer data of some kind because, you know, there's a certain customer interaction. But that data might be quite shallow because the customer interactions are, are, are very light, you know. And so to bulk that out and to understand what their customers look like in a more higher definition, they will go and work with database providers, um, with data brokers, with some of the tech giants, like to get some Facebook information maybe, some social media information, to put that all into a data lake where they can then pull up a record of pet and they can see not just the interactions they're having with you, but the interactions you're having with lots of other different providers. And when that data is connected, it leads to these circumstances where you either feel like the brand knows you far too well, far too much than it should do based on the relationship you have with them. And I think this is the important bit about the whole thing. It's how do you form relationships in a digital world? The way we form relationships in a physical world, in the offline, is that I would meet you for the first time. Pretend we've just met, right? Hello. And I put up a load of information about you that not even your best friends know. I'm not going to go straight in and out, start asking you about your health records, right? <laughs> it's just, it's just not how we. It's just not how it works, right? You're going to be creeped out, and you're going to immediately go, "I don't like this person. He's weird. Get him out of my room." I don't think we've really established a set of social norms for developing relationships online, or it doesn't feel like it anyway. I think some of the newer brands are getting it right. When I caught up with Francis Coyle from Monzo, what she said, "What makes the model different is that we have a very special relationship with our customers, and we're going back to like the best way to solve." problems for those customers we get amazing qualitative feedback because we are in support with our customers like day in day out i think we're in a unique position to understand our customers problems better than someone with further away relationship and when we're able to understand the problems better then like going back to to data being able to use the data in the best way to help them so i think that's one of the key differences between Monzo and and the larger tech companies but i think i can't really call them old but like the first generation internet companies can kind of cross the line too quickly in knowing you too well too early on so i think when you get into the situation where data is being used to hack democracy where data is being used to manipulate the way people are behaving and when data is being used in a way that is not aligned to what customers are expecting we end up in a pretty bad place look at the cambridge analytica scandal <laughs> Trying to save face after mishandling the personal information of millions of users. Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica. To license it. So how can we take back control of our private information? The cyber guy, Kurt Knudsen, is here to tell us how. 
Cambridge Analytica was a firm that Donald Trump used during the 2016 election. They bragged about how they could do psychographic information on people in social media, especially on Facebook, and how they could use it to turn on votes. You know, what happened there was that a researcher at Cambridge University that was working on behalf of Cambridge Analytica was able to access the profiles of people completing psychometric surveys. So if you completed one of those, it would take your data, but it would take the data of all of your friends as well. And so whilst Facebook have tightened that up a few years ago, this was allowed to happen. Sinjin from Citizen Me said that Cambridge Analytica has broken through as being a, a catch-all term which pretty much everyone has heard about now. I mean, you can, you can hear people talking about it on the tube, on the way to work and things. It's really kind of brought that it, the, the way that data works at the moment to the fore as part of kind of mainstream conversation, which is a very big thing. You, know, you can trace it all the way back to like Edward Snowden and mm. the Snowden files of like government surveillance. I think we're moving into a world of corporate surveillance. And what's great about GDPR is that it's forcing companies to be way more transparent about the data they have about you how they've collected it and how they're going to use it. I think there's so many things going on in the digital economy right now. Um, lots of good things and a number of not so good things. I think what we're starting to see now is some of the symptoms of what might not be so good. So we're seeing data start to gather and collect and create these pools of, of wealth that we might not desire in an open and free society. Um, we're also starting to see some user experiences be less good than was promised. You know, I'm, I'm asked for the same data over and over again. And actually, I don't know who else is listening when I'm maybe logging into my bank. I don't even know it is my bank behind the browser. Um, and so we've got a lot of... So that sounds quite ominous from Evanim's Jamie Smith. I never knew my data was being used like this. And how can they do this? And what's being done to prevent the companies actually using my data in the wrong way? So today is the first day that GDPR fully comes into effect. So what is GDPR? GDPR stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. And uh, unlike the, the title might suggest, it actually only relates to personal data. So that's the data related to individuals inside the EU or being processed by organisations within the EU. So it's actually quite a large proportion. So Jonathan Williams gave us a textbook definition, but how is digital me being protected? How is my profile being protected by the likes of Experian? GDPR is doing two things. It's protecting you and it's giving you control. So the extra protection it's giving you is it's just upgrading that level of consent. So you know how in the past where you know you signed up to a digital service and at the bottom there was a tick box which was very confusingly worded and like you didn't know whether it's a ticket or not, or whether you're going to get direct mail or not off the, off the back of it. That's been completely changed where you have to give consent to a brand to contact you for a very specific purpose. So it's not just a catch-all anymore. The other thing is that you can delete your data, you can request to edit your data, and you can withdraw consent. This upgrading consent is just giving people much more control of their data. The other really interesting thing about GDPR is this whole area of data portability. And we're starting to see that in 
the financial services world already with open banking, where you can take your data from one bank and give it to a third party that will generate new value using that data. But in other use cases, you could take that data and you could use it for switching purposes. So data portability is going to empower people in new and different ways that we don't really fully understand right now because they don't exist. But if you think about, you know, the comparison services or Martin Lewis's money saving expert, you know, the energy club that he's got, how powerful that would be is if I could just give them access to my data and say, yeah, you guys go for it. You take control and just get me the best deal because I don't care what brand I go with. I just want the cheapest energy tariff, right? And it's interesting what the Monzo guys said, you know, because they were all about Our delivery. motto, our mission is to build a digital control centre for a billion people. And this is Simon Vanskalina from Monzo. Toyed with the idea of, of other, other things like building a sort of remote control for your financial life or building a digital butler that takes care of all of your financial requirements and needs so you don't have to worry about that sort of stuff. And that's still like internally what we say is that we want to move mountains so that the experience is... Um, seamless for the user, seamless and delightful for the user. And part of moving mountains is like doing the hard yards and getting connected to all the things, but it's also having the data and knowing what mountains to move. We'll collect the data, we will um, analyze it, we work on making the experience completely seamless so that in your app, you just see the right button at the right time. You know, it might be that we noticed that 12 months ago you paid for your MOT for your car. So we might like pop up and say, don't forget your MOT is due. And here's a list of MOT providers in your area. Or you've made 11 payments to your gym. Like, do you want to cancel like and switch gyms? Or, you know, you it's 18 months since you got a new phone. Like, do you want to get a new phone? So we want those. We want to make those delightful, magical experiences. And all of that is driven by data. But because we're doing it for the customer, for the benefit of the customer, because the customers ask us to, we don't really have a problem with consent. We're not advertising to you. We're, we're building delightful experiences for you. Like that's the product. You, if you're using Monzo, that's and the product that we're trying to build. use of data, the portability of different data from one place to another is going to generate interest in new business models. The kind of personal assistant, that kind of butler in your pocket, this is where the future of the data company is is going. So digital me is going to have a digital butler in the future, basically. Yeah, and doesn't everyone want one of those? <laughs> <laughs> These digital butlers sound great, but are they going to use my data any differently to the likes of Facebook and Google? Well, yeah, I think it depends on how they use that data and the processes and protocols they have in place. So they don't necessarily need to identify you they just need to know some information about you to be able to give you the products and services that are meaningful in your life. Yeah, and, and that's the heart of it. You know, we, we can redefine what organisations are there to do because they can use data in amazing new ways. You know, retailers, I think, will eat this up. The ability to know what's in my shopping basket, because I've shared that. You don't need to know my name and address. You just need to know what's in my shopping basket. Wouldn't that be interesting for a, for a grocer? Same for a sports brand or a running shoe. You know, if you knew that I pronated when I ran, you know, or I run kind of slightly lopsided, and how many miles I run, wouldn't it be really interesting to help build a nutrition plan and a training plan and recommend some shoes without having to track everything about me? And I can share those things, you know, in crypto language and zero knowledge. So you don't need to know who I am and where I live, you just need to know those things about me. 
and I, you know, I might pay quite a lot more for that service, maybe even as a subscription. And I think that could be really exciting for brands. Some other companies that I use and other digital services that I use also, I'm assuming, have a lot of data on me. Why do I still hate using some of these apps? I think, you know, you can look at this in two ways. There's those apps that are over familiar and there's those apps that just aren't familiar enough. You know, I think there's a certain level of expectation from customers that says that, well, you know a lot about me. You've got some information. I've filled out that profile tab in that app. You know some stuff about me. So you should be able to fill out some forms for me or like do some of the really mundane stuff that comes with like applying for certain things. That stuff just automate for me. And if you're not going to automate it for me, you know what? Like this isn't the service for me because I want an easy life. But then on the other side, if you go too far, and you're not being transparent with what data you're using, how you've got that, and how you've come to this really odd, uncanny situation, then that can also put people off using certain apps. You just mentioned how me, as a customer, has a certain expectation on digital service when I give them a certain amount of information or data. I fill that form. Will GDPR make these companies create more customer-centric products? I think GDPR will do two things, in fact. One is it's going to stop those kind of like rogue apps that you've downloaded because they offer a free game and basically they're collecting lots of data off your phone and pinging it back to their servers. You know, that's just not on. And if they're caught doing that, when GDPR is live, then you know you look at the fines and it's 4% of global revenue or 20 million euros, whichever is highest. So that's going to put the GDPR on every business's radar. When you, when you talk about customer centricity, customer centricity manifests itself in a number of different ways. It manifests itself in the product or service it's trying to deliver. You know, is this satisfying a need that you have? It also manifests itself in the way that it communicates to you. Is this service or app being transparent in the way that it is working with you, uh, whether that's with your data or with how honest it's being with its communications and what it's doing in the background? And another thing is, you know, how is this business making money? Because if the outcomes aren't aligned, then this causes a tension between the brand and the customer. The main thing is we're trying to build a company where our incentives are aligned with those of our customers. And this is Simon Vanskalina from Monzo. And advertising companies aren't necessarily that. Nothing is particularly focused at us making profit. It's the products are developed in order to solve a problem. And this is Francis Coyle from Monzo. Which we think will, will make us more popular. Um, customers will love to bank with us because um, we're, we're the best at solving their problems. What we want to do is, is look for opportunities where we can offer services to our customers that benefit our customers and us and the merchants that are in the marketplace. And advertising companies don't necessarily work that way. They want to optimize for maximum revenue. I think we kind of started to see this with Facebook, where the outcome for Facebook is they want to sell more ads to their advertisers amongst their Facebook community. Facebook users 
want to use Facebook to connect with their friends. And actually, the advertising is becoming more of a noise than it is a benefit. And so how can businesses align the outcomes the business is trying to drive that drives its profitability with what its customer base wants? So so it sounds a lot like businesses have created entire business models reliant on data. So that means it's quite valuable, right? So does that mean digital me has some sort of value as well? Yeah, I think the digital self has an enormous amount of value and use the word commodity. And that's really interesting because, you know, almost 10 years ago, the World Economic Forum categorized data as being an asset. And that has kind of led on to um, lots of people talking about data being the new oil. And if data is the new oil, does that mean the tech giants are the new oil barons, you know, that are kind of creating the wealth from this customer data that's kind of swooshing around the internet? Thinking about data as oil is probably it's probably the correct analogy, but it's a dangerous one too. Because, you know, effectively all data is is humans, it's us. You know, if it's customer data, then it belongs to a person. And to think of humans and people as commodities is probably moving into dangerous territory. I think that the language we use. Uh, when you think about oil, you think about uh, exploitation of oil and drilling for oil, uh, processing oil, cracking oil, um, and, and the, the output of oil is diesel cars and plastic bags. It's not a very... I think um, we need to move away from this analogy that data is oil. Data is just people. And the way we use data should be in more of a human way. And it's not about making people more digital. It's leveraging the digital to enhance the human. You know, this is, this is the kind of stuff that Sinjin talks about really well in his analogy of data is um, water. Uh, and I think a much better analogy is actually we look at data being more like the new water. Um, if you're in the desert and you don't have any water to drink, data is incredibly valuable because it enables us to live. Um, but also in terms of kind of the way that we're moving into a world of uh, renewable energy and we're moving away from those kind of that kind of old industrial oil era and that kind of centralized way of doing things. Water is actually a much better analogy um, in terms of data needs to be fresh, like water to be consumed. Um, You can purify it. So you have, for instance, kind of salt water, you purify it to to be able to consume it. Um, but also there's kind of a data commons because when we share data together and donate data into a society, we can, for instance, get better transport services and better healthcare systems. Um, so there's there's kind of much more of a commons and a, and a um, human kind of analogy there, I think, which we need to push. In the ideal world, I want apps and products that I use to be as personalized as possible. If I'm using Spotify, I want to be prompted with music I might listen to, not with all music. So to what level and to what extent is personalization going to be really key to uh, companies creating digital products in the future? And I think this is really interesting because personalization can go too far. 
I think, you know, we've seen this with the supposed echo chambers that we all exist in, where, you know, we just keep talking about the same things within the same group and agreeing with each other. And the music recommendation stuff is great because to a certain extent, I do want to kind of screen out the stuff that I know I'm not going to listen to. But on the other hand, there's a level of spontaneity, a level of a novelty that I want in my feed. Um, so I don't want you to just recommend the music from the artists and bands that I listen to already. I want to find new stuff. We crave new stuff. We crave novelty. And so I think getting that balance right between personalization and novelty is, is really, really important. And so the question lies in the domain of discovery. How do we, as customers, as consumers of certain products, discover things in the future? And the way we discover things now is we use internet services that use our data to personalize services and internet services that use our data to push adverts to us on various social media channels, on various websites that we browse around. But I think the end result in a kind of future world, a future data company, is where we have these kind of digital assistants that are saying, you know, well, you could do this or you could do that. They're not giving us uh, limitless amounts of options, but they're saying, based on what we know about you, the personalization bit, we think you might like X, Y, and Z, the novelty bit. You know, it's taking that intelligence and it's creating more of a conversation with the end user rather than pushing a load of stuff that they think they might click on. Why is it that companies that have built their business model around the subscription economy where i'm technically like renting a netflix account or my access to my netflix account for a month or renting access to my spotify account for a month why have those companies done the personalization side far better than bank accounts facebook for example well i think from the music industry perspective we started off in the late 90s with napster and so there's a whole problem with sharing music. And so I think Napster and the kind of resulting um, sharing of, of music on peer-to-peer services forced the music industry's hand to do something that was compelling for for consumers. You know, they weren't willing to pay the, the high prices of, of CDs. But equally, you know, if you provided something really compelling, they would stop the um, really laborious process of going on torrent sites and downloading albums. And what Spotify and Apple and all the various entertainment subscription sites, Netflix and all that have done, they've, they've created a, a really compelling proposition. And part of that includes a level of personalization, which I think is really, really important. So then thinking about the subscription services that have that have appeared that we all use now, they're largely entertainment based or they're very social. You know, they've got social networks, entertainment networks that allow us to access great content and share that and communicate that with our friends and family. What we're starting to see next is the more functional aspects of our lives become more streamlined and creating better experiences around that. Who'd have thought that a desirable thing to get for a birthday or for a, a Christmas would be like a smart thermostat? I mean, that's just like bananas, right? So I think, 
you know, these more functional jobs of setting the temperature right in my house so I can reduce my energy bills or just managing my money in a really intelligent way so I don't have to think about it are really important advances we're making um, that is just going to reduce the mundanity of the stuff people have to do in their lives. And I think that's a great, a great step forward. Part of that development is these marketplaces because at certain times in the year you're going to need to get new car insurance or house insurance or you're going to want to get a line of credit for uh, something you want to buy you want to get a new laptop or whatever it might be and accessing those things in the moment at the right point at the right time is where these marketplaces can kick in because if they're linked into these ecosystems of apps and services we're using already then they're much more relevant and they feel like they're satisfying something that I want to get done. But also there's a level of personalization through these marketplaces that can be achieved with um, using some of the customer data that plugs into those marketplaces. So people are trying to sell practicality, basically. That's what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, I for one can't wait, you know. <laughs> so, you know, some of the stuff that we kind of waste our time doing, you know, who wants to fill out expense reports at work? I mean, come on, like, can't we just automate that? Who wants to spend hours online looking for car insurance? I don't, I don't you know, I just want that someone to do it for me. So the services that add that value, that save me time, and that just reduce the amount of time I spend on the stuff that I don't want to do allows me to then go and use Spotify and Netflix a bit more, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, we, we talked about data being a commodity, but isn't time the most valuable one? So selling practicality and, and selling basically time to customers is, is going to be really important. Me and you once had a conversation about why customers don't really change bank accounts. The reason is because it takes so long. And you were talking about how laborious that process is. And maybe we'll see more frictionless um, interoperability between different products in the future. Mm, and I think the interoperability point is, um, is a good one because I think with what GDPR is trying to do with the data portability thing is say, well, you know, if you want your data in a machine readable format, then you should be able to have that. And to then be able to switch between one banking provider to another or one mobile company to another should be a seamless process. You know, this is championing the consumer here. It's you know, a bit like, you know, open banking and, and, and PSD2. That was introduced to stimulate competition in the marketplace. GDPR is in a similar way with the data portability part of that is, well, you know, we want a much more competitive marketplace. So does everyone have to be GDPR compliant from today, the, the 25th of May? So I think most of the data protection authorities are, are looking at this and, and many of them have said, well, on the 25th of May, we're not looking to go out with a, a big stick and apply the various measures that we could. And that includes fines, though, though fines is probably the, the least of your worries, uh, even though that the headline figure of up to 4% of global turnover uh, and up to 20 million euros, whichever is the greater, um, obviously, there's a quite eye-watering sums. I don't expect any of fines to be approaching the, those sorts of levels in the very near future. Although, if there was a particularly grievous offence, then a data protection uh, authority might decide to apply those. 
The other things that they could do is they can warn you, they can um, ask you to, to, to stop a particular type of processing, they could um, ask you to, to amend your ways. Uh, they've got quite a, a number of different measures that they, they could apply to you. Um, and certainly if there were certification regimes and there aren't at the moment, then they could ask you to, to be removed from a certification regime or they could, in some cases, the, I guess the worst case is, they could tell you to stop processing personal data. Now, for some businesses... That will be existential. They they won't survive that. Uh, I think that the data protection authority would only use that as a very last resort. I'm I'm expecting data protection authorities to be going in mainly to try and educate and to warn and to hopefully um, try and educate the whole market based on good practice um, rather than necessarily holding up the bad practice to uh, to account. It's going to be a lot more harmonised than the previous. So will GDPR go? global will the massive tech giants outside of the eu want to comply to this legislation i think that's the question that many global companies will be asking themselves Uh, the gdpr is just an eu thing at the minute but the eu is such a massive trading block for many of the global companies that they have to think very seriously and very hard about complying with gdpr and so the question then becomes for them do they take GDPR and the principles behind it um, completely in-house and, you know, have this single data policy throughout the business? Or do they run two separate ones, one for Europe and one for outside of Europe? And the latter sounds very tricky to me. So how quickly do you think this will take effect? So if you were expecting everyone in, say, five, ten years' time to be completely compliant with GDPR, I think that's unlikely. And the reason I think it's unlikely is because it's been 20 years since the 1998 Data Protection Act came in. So given it's been 20 years, you'd have expected every business in the UK to have had enough time to make sure all of their systems are compliant. And we know from ICO fines and from enforcement action that that's not the case. But we will be in a much better position in even two or three years time. And we will be having those more adult discussions about what happens with our data. And we'll have moved away from the, oh, yeah, let's go capture this piece of data. We're not sure whether we need it or not, but it sounds interesting. And maybe we'll use it in two or three years' time. Let's just throw it into the data lake. I think the, the days of saying, oh, yeah, let's let's go and grab that might be useful. I think those days are gone. Um, and almost we're going back to the sort of 1980s when we had very small limits in memory and computers, and certainly in terms of, of storage, where you had to go and pare everything down almost to the bit. Um, I think we are, we're, for, for good data protection, data minimization reasons, I think we're going to get back to that data where those days where we're, we're minimizing the amount of data we hold, and therefore the amount of exposure we've got should there be hacking or data breaches of other type, for example, stuff being printed out on paper. So how quickly do you think that the customer will notice the GDPR is in place, that will notice these products improving from a from a relationship standpoint? I, I don't think people are going to be aware of GDPR in of itself. You know, it's a, it's a very technical thing, but I think customers are increasingly becoming aware of the value of their data and the rights they have with their customer data. And that's not been brought about by GDPR. I think that's just been brought about by a sense of, well, it should just be this way. And I think GDPR is just a landmark moment that swings the balance. It says, you know, customers have been screaming out for this for a little while now. 
and there's been elements of the digital economy that have become dysfunctional. And GDPR is a moment in time that just says, well, look, we're going to move to something different and we're going to enforce that. So this is day one of GDPR. What does the future hold? Many things. <laughs> First thing, um, we've only just hit kind of mass awareness of, of this data interaction happening. Uh, the internet's only been around 20 years. We're baby step stage. So we're starting to move into a place where we have all of us becoming more aware of what's happening. We're becoming more mindful of, of what's happening with our data. Uh, we're becoming more aware of the, the value of it. We're aware that there's an economy there. Uh, there are all kinds of things on the political side, the regulation side, and governance of data is only just starting to come through. We've got GDPR is really just the first step towards this. Uh, and then technology always takes time to lag. It's very easy to say things are going to happen in two years, but actually to take 15. The critical thing is that you're in control, and GDPR is actually all about control. It's not really about ownership. So you, you build that in terms of layers. Just like any relationship, you start off by having kind of initial conversations, and as you share experiences you build a deeper relationship. And if those experiences are beneficial, then you, you have a benevolent light relationship, right? Same with, same with any uh, interaction. With fruition. You know, in 10 years' time, um, my kids will be able to, you know, seamlessly go about their day in a private, uh, secure way that empowers them to get what matters done to them. And so they can traverse all these organizations seamlessly without there being uh, some of the issues of data, concentrations of data, and some might say corporate surveillance. GDPR is converging with a number of other forces that are changing the nature of how businesses engage with their customers. As a society, we're expecting more from businesses, especially those that play a central part of our lives. Technology companies have created services around our public and personal spaces. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram are digital versions of our community. Amazon is our new digital high street and Google is a supercharged version of the public library and our gateway to the world's information. With companies like these playing such a significant role in people's lives, they need to balance generating profits with an increasing need to fulfill a larger social responsibility. A big part of this social responsibility is how businesses use our personal data to deliver intelligent digital services we all want to use. Because all that effectively means is a digital world treating people fairly and with respect. This episode was hosted by Ryan Garner, produced by Ollie Judge and Laura Watkins, edited by Michael Bailey. Thank you to Jamie Smith from Evanim, Jonathan Williams from MK2 Consulting, Sunjun Deakins from Citizen Me, and finally thanks to Simon Vanskalina and Francis Coyle from Monzo. This show is brought to you by 11FS. 11FS transform businesses and frankly, we get shit done. So to find out what we can do for you, head over to 11fs.com. If you really did enjoy that, please do leave us a review. We love reading those reviews. And why not subscribe to the podcast? If you enjoyed this episode, then there'll be plenty more like this every single Friday. Thanks all for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.